Okay, the kids can go. You're going with Shelley this morning. So again, carrying on with our God's Wars series. Nice pacifist heart of Jesus movement, nonviolent movement we've got going on here. No, but seriously, it's just a Bible study through the wars in the Old Testament. We're not actually Krav Maga or fighting skills or anything like that. What? So, let's pray. Father God, I thank you that we can come <clears throat> together and we can come sit under your word, sit under the direction of your Holy Spirit. I pray this morning that you would lead us and guide us into all truth and into all wisdom and into revelation from you, Jesus. We know that it is your revelation that will bring transformation in our lives. And, and Father, we want to be transformed into the likeness of your Son, Jesus. Holy Spirit, come and help us with that. Come and, come and help us to be more and more like Jesus each and every day. Amen. Amen. So, you know, it's, um, it's interesting, so I've been uh, like reading and looking at social media and things like that, which are not always the most healthy place to get sermon analogies from, but it certainly are some colorful ones. Um, but, you know, we, we, we live in a world where, like our, our sort of neo-postmodern Western world, which is kind of just where we are at the moment, is focused on giving us choice, focused on giving us choice in everything. I mean, it started with things like macro and builder's warehouse and things where you could just choose, like you got massive amounts of choice. And if you, I mean, if you take that to the next level and you go to America and you see the shops that they've got there, like the Walmarts and the, the Targets, and you can find anything you want in any shade of color you want and however big or small you want it. It's, it's, it's insane, like the, the amount of choice. It's actually overwhelming at some stages on what you want, like on, on what you can choose. But what has happened is this has shifted, that, that sort of choice in the consumer mindset has shifted not only from things that are external in, in terms of material things that we have, but it has it is shifted into being able to have the choice of who you want to be. And it started out pretty, pretty healthy in a thing of, well, not, not really healthy, but, but in a, with a more healthy sort of part behind it of you can be whoever you want to be, which I don't think is true. But that was the, it was the thing to say, don't let anybody hinder you or put you down. But that thing has spilled over and, and, and has, has pushed into it and almost metamorphosized into something that is extremely destructive where we've, we've now in a place where in our society, the highest value we have is self-determination. So what that means is, is it's a self-identification. Yeah? Have you heard of that? You can, who, who, you can choose who you want to be. We all know now it's got to the point where you can choose your sexuality or your, even your gender. And you can choose your gender pronouns, how you wish to be referred to. So you can, he, she, we, thee, they, it, uh, there's lots, and they're growing. Uh, and it's, it's actually becoming, it's starting to get absurd, where people are, are not using real words for the pronouns, they're using sounds. I'm not kidding. There are people who wish to be referred to as X, V, G, K, L. And I'm like, well, how about we call you by the name? But that's the thing, we're allowing, parents are now allowing kids to choose their own names. 
They're going, we're going to let him self-identify so when he's aware, he can choose his own name. It can choose its own name. At, we don't want to give it a boy or a girl name. We want it to be able to choose. Yeah. And we have this massive value placed on self-identification or self-determination. You can't tell me who I am and who I'm not. And, I mean, it comes down to one celebrity and it, it, on a singer on her arm and she's got tattooed, only God can judge me. And unfortunately, that's not very encouraging for her. It's a warning. It should be a warning. But she's kind of going like, you can't tell me who I'm going to be. Only God can judge me. But that's like, yes, he can. Are you aware that he can? I think that a large part of where we've got to now is out of a response to the kind of failure in leadership. Maybe it's a bit of a rebellion against poor leadership that we've seen in our political and, and business world for many, many years. There's been massive forms of failing in, in authority and control, and we've seen that right from the early sort of late 18th, uh, late, 18th uh, late 19th, early 20th century where we've had massive, massive failings in leadership and whether those are, are right or wrong it, 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 I think that's where it comes from it's the, the constant moral failures and and people are just sick of it and they're going well I'm not going to take any form I'm going to rebel against authority and the kind of heart of it was probably in the 60s and 70s and we live in the fallout of that the development of that as that has as filtered down and, and the irony is and the sad thing for us is that we think we're living in the most free times ever we're living in the best the golden age of humanity where we're able to put people on other planets almost we're getting pretty close old elon you're getting pretty close to putting someone and nuking the pole so you can warm it up of mars but what we're seeing in people's lives particularly in western society modern western society is that things like the social ills of society are levels they've never been at before in a place where you have immense Material choice. They've never lived in a more wealthy society than we are in now. You are able to determine who you are. You're able to choose who you want to be. Suicide rates are at an all-time high. Levels of anxiety and depression have never been measured higher in teenagers than they have as we are now. Social crimes, things like school shootings, spousal abuse, those sort of things are running rampant and destroying communities and societies. And I believe this is because of an overemphasis on a highly valued right to self-determination, the results of which are the destruction of self-esteem. And we don't know who we are and we don't know where we stand. The beauty of what God does in His Word right in the beginning, and He does it early on in Genesis, and Genesis is not a history fact book, but it is true. And it is true for us. And what God does right in the beginning is He identifies who we are. He gives us an identity. He says to us, you are made in my image. Male and female. Made in my image. I have made you like that. He cements our identity in him. It's a beautiful thing. But you see, the thing is, even though God defines us, the enemy knows, the devil knows, that if he can corrupt that thing, if he can corrupt our identity, everything else falls apart from there on out. He's won the battle. It's almost like he's cut you off at the knees. 
and you're done. You can have the sword in your hand and you can have the armor on your body, but you ain't going nowhere. You see, friends, we are not who the world says we are. When we're going to live from our true self, we've got to live from who God says that we are. And He is the one who created us and He is the one who knows us. If you want to if you want to know what my kids are like, you can either spend 13 years with them or you can come and ask me and I'll tell you what they're like because I have spent 13 years with them. They have started from day dot in our house and we know them. And you with parents, you'll know, you, you parents with kids, you'll know that. You, you know, as you grow up, you don't really like that your parents know you and your parents are going, listen, I know what you like, don't do this. And you're like, don't tell me what to do, I know what I like. And we get there. And then we get older and we're like, sorry, mom. Even now, I still, I mean, I had my mom with us for a week. And I'm like, sorry, mom. <laughs> because they know us. They're there. And it's the same with God with us, friends. He knows us. He knows who we're made to be. And so when he calls us these things that are up, yes, the screen's up. Our identity is surrounded around who God calls us to be. He says things like, you are mine. You are a son and a daughter of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You are beloved you are a co-heir of everything with christ you are a saint you are a royal priest you are part of an elect community i don't i don't want you to feel like i'm overstating this because i can't and you see when god calls us things like royal priesthood that's not to bring the priesthood down to our level that's to lift us up to that level when he says you are co-heirs with Christ, it's not that he's reducing what Christ is an heir of. He is lifting us up to that place and saying that's who you are. That's how important you are. It's an incredible thing, friends. That's who you are in God. More than can be said. More than what you can ever think or dream or imagine. That's who God calls you. That's how he defines you. That's how he sees you when we are in Christ. And some of us... and. and Again, you know, I think for many of us, we start off in, in, the, in, in our faith walk with Jesus and we, we start off and we have such a brilliant tradition in, in, and a history in the church and a, a flow of um, preaching the gospel and of reaching people with the love of Jesus and the, the message of the forgiveness of our sins. And that is beautiful and it is right and it is true, but it is not where we stay. We are not just forgiven sinners. We are that, but we are so much more. You see, some of us live in that religious notion that, man, I'm just a forgiven sinner of God. No, you are not. Yes, you are, but no, you're not. Yes, you are, but you are so much more. You are more than that. That is not, that is who, the sinner is who you used to be. David Needham puts it like this. He says, regeneration is more than being forgiven or having something added. A new nature is what he's referring to. It is becoming someone you had never been before. Regeneration, salvation, is becoming someone you had never been before. It's incredible. Not in the flesh, but in our true self on the spirit level. Our essential nature is righteous rather than sinful. God calls you this morning, if you are saved, your faith is in Jesus, God calls you righteous. It's incredible, friends, because like me, I guarantee you, you do not feel worthy of that title. It was hard to prepare for this. I was wrestling with this thing going, God, I don't even know if I believe this of me. How am I going to preach this? And God said, I don't care. It's true. 
It's true, friends. That's how God sees us. When we have put our faith in Jesus, when we have been cleansed by the blood of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, we are forgiven sinners and we are more than that. Because of the resurrection, we are righteous. God sees us as righteous, as sons and daughters of the King. This is the very thing that Paul prays for in Ephesians 1 and 3, those two amazing prayers that he has in Ephesians 1 and 3, 1 and 3 where he says, I pray that you get the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you will know the love of Christ. That you will know how wide and deep and high and long is the love of Christ. Because Paul knows when we grasp that, when we grasp just how much God loves us, just how crazy it is that God sees us as righteous. When we get that, everything else falls into place. He doesn't pray that we get power so that we can go and save, preach the gospel and heal people and change nations. He knows that if we grasp the love of Christ and we know who we are in Jesus and we get that, those other things are going to happen. We will go and pray for the sick. We will go and preach the gospel. We will go and change nations with our homes and our businesses. We're getting there. I'm running ahead of myself. But Paul's saying, our essential identity is changed at salvation. And this is why also in Romans, Romans chapter 15, 8, Romans chapter 8, sorry, Paul likens our salvation to adoption. Now, if you don't know, our oldest is adopted, uh, Seth, and part of the process of adoption that you go through in South Africa, when you do the, uh, when you do the adoption, is he gets not only a new name, which is a wonderful experience at Home Affairs if you want to increase your spiritual gifting in patience and long-suffering, because um, it is long-suffering. But it is, what happens is he gets a new name, he gets a new surname, but the incredible thing is at adoption, when that adoption order comes through and you apply, he gets a new ID number. How amazing is that? It is such a cool picture, because that's what God does for us. It's not just a name change. It's an ID number change. God changes your identity. On the system, your identity is changed in heaven. New ID number, tones. Pick your own birth date. Not really. God picked it. <laughs> but a completely different identity, not only on an administrative level, but far more than that. On who you are. You are changed. Our new identity is based in Jesus. It's based in who He is. And it's based in what He has done. It's based in what he is doing, and it's based in what he will do. It's all of that. God knew that identity was so key for Jesus and his time on earth that at the very start of his earthly ministry, the work that God had from on earth, God affirms Jesus' identity publicly. I think it was more for those around him than it was for Jesus. I don't think Jesus was unsure of his identity in Christ. I mean... <laughs> His identity as Christ and his identity in the Father. And it's the same thing. You know, Jesus goes out into the wilderness right at the beginning before he's done everything. And what's the attack of the devil that comes? He doesn't come and question Jesus' knowledge of the word. His question to him over and over, Luke 4, verses 3 and 9. He starts off with the accusation, if you are the son of God. Do you see it? He's attacking his identity. If you are the Son of God. And then he uses scripture incorrectly, and Jesus fortunately helps him with a lesson on exegesis and context and says, That's not right. This is how it actually is. But the attack comes on the identity. The attack comes 
at the core of who he is. And friends, we face the same battle, same spiritual battle for our identity. And the devil will use anything in your life to condemn you and drive you away from the Father. That is why Paul writes, for us who are in Christ, Romans 8 verse 1, therefore there is now no condemnation. Because those things that, that God says of us are true. You are beloved. You are forgiven. You are righteous. You are my son, my daughter. Nothing on this earth will change the fact that Seth is my son. I don't care if home affairs falls apart, if the adoption order is burnt. Do what you like. He's my son. Nothing is going to change. He can do what he likes. He can tell me I'm not his dad and I never was. He's still my son. Nothing is going to change that. And it's the same with us, with God, friends. Nothing is going to change that. That's who we are. When we settle this thing in our hearts, when we settle this matter of our identity in Christ in our hearts, we are then better placed to minister in the kingdom of God. We are then better placed to serve in the, in, in the kingdom of God. When I say minister, you know the word minister literally means serve as a verb. As a noun, it means servant. That's why I don't like being called a minister. I'm kidding. Being secure in identity. That's, that's why they're Methodist ministers. They're far more holy than we are. Being secure in our identity allows us to, like Jesus, be the humble servant. You see, Jesus, he was able not just to serve, but to be treated like a servant. We love to serve. We love that. Like, uh, for me, it's one of my love languages, like gifts of service, acts of service. I like doing stuff for people. Um, it's not always obvious, and I quite like it when it's hidden and they discover it quietly. I'm like sneaky like that with my love. But sometimes, you know, we, we love to serve and we love to, to be like that. But as soon as someone treats us like a servant, we get offended. We're like, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm being nice here. Don't, don't be like that. But you see, when we are secure in our identity, we're not going to be affected by how the other treats us. And that's how Jesus was. He was able to be treated like a servant and still be secure in who he was and do what he came to do. When we settle this matter in our heart, we become partakers in the divine. 2 Peter 1 verse 4. Peter says, we get to be partakers in the divine in this life. We get to be a part of God. We get to experience being part of God. It is an incredible thing. As sons and daughters of the King, partakers in the divine, secure in our identity in God, we have delegated authority from the Father. We have power through the anointing of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We have a completely transformed identity through the new birth in Christ. My charge to you this morning is to live in that identity. Live from that place of who God says you are. And that, friends, is the heart of our faith. That is the heart of apostolic Christianity. Our heart, our identity, who we are in Christ, is the heart of apostolic Christianity. And apostolic Christianity, if you're not sure, I know it's a bit of Christianese and there's been a lot of it already and there's some more coming this morning, but apostolic Christianity is simply the Christianity, the faith that we live in. It's the faith that is built, as Paul writes in Ephesians, on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets. It's a Christianity that is a going. It is not a gathering. It is, yes, we come together and we gather, but we're not trying to build these holy huddles and these things that are separate 
from the world. It is more like a spinning tire. It is a force that spins and sends things out. It is a centrifugal force as opposed to a centripetal force. Centripetal force. I don't know how to pronounce it properly. <laughs> centripetal? Centripetal. Thanks, Dave. Who knew that years of science would come in handy in church? But friends, that is the heart of Christianity, apostolic Christianity, out of our identity of Jesus, secured in who he is, what he has done, what he is doing, what he's going to do. It's a going. It's a going in nature. We get to, to live out and to carry on the mission of Christ. Some of us have been wrongly taught that what Jesus was doing is done on the cross. And you're going, but he said it's finished. Yes, his work on earth is finished on the cross. But his mission carries on with us. We get to advance the kingdom. What a privilege. We get to enforce the victory almost. We don't have to win it. Tones, we don't have to win the victory. God's won it. But we get to enforce it. What a brilliant thing. We just get to go, he's won it. This is ours. That's how we roll. It's beautiful. This mission is a kingdom claiming, a kingdom enacting and a kingdom advancing lifestyle. It's going for the gospel. Dudley Daniel puts it like this. He says, apostolic Christianity has a heart to go and not to gather, to send and not to stay. It's beautiful, friends. We so often, like, we want to we get, we want to accumulate, we want to... But that's not what Christianity, apostolic Christianity is about. It's a going. It's a sending. We live in the commissioning of Matthew 8, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. It says, therefore, go. All authority... Jesus has all authority. He gives it to us. Therefore, go, make disciples, baptize, and teach of all nations, all people groups, all ethnic groups. We live in the promise of Acts 1 verse 8, which says, we will be his witnesses here, close, far to the ends of the earth. We get to be that. When the Holy Spirit comes on us in power, that's who we will. And even when we face things like persecution, the gospel goes. There's an old saying, it says, if Acts 1.8 doesn't get you, 1.8 um, says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Acts, let me read it for you because I, I'm going to get Acts 8.1 wrong. It says, if Acts 1.8 doesn't get you, you'll be my witnesses. Acts 8.1 will. So if Acts 1.8 doesn't get you, Acts 8.1 will. Acts 8.1 reads like this. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Amazing. If Acts 1.8 doesn't get you being sent as, in the power of the Spirit as witnesses, Acts 8.1 will. A persecution will scatter. But you see the same things. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, used in both those verses. That's the link. Because it's going not just here, it's going there, and it's going far. That is the heart of the apostolic gospel that we get to carry. The gospel will spread even when we face persecution. Because God says you are beloved, doesn't mean you're not going to face persecution, doesn't mean you're not going to face hard times. But when we live from our true identity with the kingdom always before us, that is what we are advancing. We're able to give everything without compromise because we know who God calls us to be. And we know what he calls us to do. So for us, we carry on the, the mission of Jesus, this work of Jesus, the, the walk. We, as we walk with Jesus, we carry it on 
through the victory that he's won. But practically, what does that look like? What does the victory that Jesus has won look like? And the best example we have is the early church, the post-Pentecost early church. So I would encourage you to go and read the, uh, the early chapters, or, the, or you can read the book of Acts if you want. But the, certainly um, from chapters sort of three onwards, uh, Pentecost is Acts chapter 2, and then from three onwards, we start to see what this apostolic Christianity looks like, the early church, how they function. So here's a quick summary of it. First things... Some of the first things we see in that early church living out their faith, their identity and who Jesus has made them to be is, is unity among the believers as they follow the apostles and the Holy Spirit. There's healings, physical healings that happen. There's believers that speak the gospel and truth to those that are in power, political power. There's obedience to God no matter the cost, a communal sharing of everything. There is the great fear of God. There is persecution. There are people giving their lives, literally dying for the testimony of Jesus. We see salvations. We see baptisms. We see churches planted through homes. We see the gospel advanced across the known world through businesses. We see people not shrinking back from tough moments. Ultimately, we see over and over again the kingdom rule and reign of God breaking in over and over as a sign of what Jesus has done, of the kingdom that is coming. So for us, how? How do we partake in this? How do we live this out? If we've got that, if we, if we are starting to grasp something of that identity, of that knowledge of who we are in Christ, and friends, I want to encourage you, remind yourself of that daily. Because we forget real quick. How do we live this out? I look at Jesus. As a disciple of Jesus, I look at him in his lifestyle. And I say, what did he do? How did he live in his earthly life? How did he live this thing out? As the son of God, God pronounced it. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Before he's done anything. What an amazing statement to make. How affirming must that be? God's saying, you've got what it takes. A longing we all have. Do I have what it takes? God answers it before Jesus has done anything. He's been a carpenter builder up until that stage. Not really super spiritual. And God says, I'm so pleased with you. You are my son. So if we look at Jesus from his life, we must live this two categories, four things that I think we should do. We must live firstly in terms of engaging and retreating. And secondly, we must live lives of discipline and freedom. And those might seem like four very contrary things, but let's deal with them two at a time. So the first thing we must do is live a life in the rhythm of engage and retreat, just like Jesus did. See, Jesus had times when he engaged the enemy, if we look at his earthly ministry, those times from, from his baptism to his crucifixion, uh, or to his resurrection, there are times when he engaged actively. He was ministering to people. He was healing people. He was going around preaching and teaching. He was praying for people. Uh, and, and for us, it's the same. We need to have those times of engaging, those times when we are ministering to the world, when we are serving those who are far from Jesus. When we are getting out there and living the gospel out at the coalface, it's the front of the spiritual battle in the world that we live at. Ministering, praying, sharing our lives with them, engaging, not hard to know what those things are. But to get out and do them is not always easy. But there are times when Jesus engaged. And then interestingly, there's times when he retreated. And, and a retreat, not in the sense of, of moving back from like losing ground, as in like sound the retreat, run away, 
brave Sir Robin. It's not that. It's more times of stepping back to rest and to recoup and to prepare for what's coming. Rhythms of engaging and retreating, not shrinking back, but taking time to refresh. Jesus does this. We see this where he takes, sometimes he'll go off. It says early in the morning he went off alone to pray. Other times it says he withdrew with his apostles or his disciples into the wilderness, the Arabah. He, he went away from where there was a lot of people. He went to a lonely place. He goes away from the crowds. He moves away from work. He takes time to rest. And for us, friends, this is when we need to refresh our souls in the intimacy and the presence of God. This is when we get to rest in the embrace of the Father. Times of quiet and times of respite. And honestly, times when we are not available to other people. There are some times in the week when I am not available to people. And I'm available pretty much all the time. But there are some times when that phone goes off because I know I need it. And so does everybody else that I want to serve and want to love on. It is good for the world that we take time to rest, friends. Man, in a world of go, 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 you're falling behind, you're losing time, you're not making as much. We need times of rest and refreshing where we can be intimate. Maybe it's reading a book. Maybe it's simply being in the presence of the Father. But I want to encourage you to make, make time to prioritize this. Make time for rest every week. And not small little bits here and there. Make time for large chunks of rest in your week. You know, in the, in the Old Testament, and I'm not preaching law here, but in the Old Testament, God had the Sabbath. That is one day out of seven. One full 24-hour day of seven where God demonstrated rest first, and then he said, right, I want you to rest. And the beautiful thing about that rest is it's not just a physical rest. It is that. We need that. But we can kind of get by without that, especially if, you, if you're young, like Dave. But what it is, is that taking time to rest, taking time to not only engage, but to retreat from the battle, is a massive spiritual statement that says, I trust God. Because in that moment, you must remember, I mean, and the farmers here will understand, in an agrarian society, when it's harvest time, it's harvest time. You go. I watched the, the maize guys in Rustenburg, where we lived. When it was time to plant, when you knew that, rain, that first rain was coming, it was time to plant. You planted, Bhutti. Through the night, into the next day, it doesn't matter. You go. Yeah. And in a, so in an agrarian society, that's the society God speaks to. And he says, I want you one out of every seven days to not work. Do nothing. I don't care what time of year it is. I don't care how busy you are. Because I want you to demonstrate to the nations around you that by your rest, by not doing anything, you are going to have a powerful testimony of how much you trust me. It's incredible, that thing of the Sabbath. I want us to, I want to, I want to challenge you with this. Make time for rest in your week. And not just being entertained and watching social media and Netflix all day long, but time to rest in the presence of God. Being entertained is not resting. It's two different things. Resting in the presence of God, that engaging and retreating, we need both. See, we live in a very much an either-or society, but this is a both-and moment for us. Both of these things. Engage and retreat in the spiritual battle. We must find the rhythm of Christ 
in our lives for engaging and retreating. It can't be all one or all the other. It must be both. The second thing on how we live our lives. So that's the first one. That's a rhythm we need to find in our lives. Out of the identity of Christ, understanding we live from a heart that is apostolic in nature in our faith and how we live it out, engaging and retreating, the going and the resting. We must live lives, must live our lives from a place of discipline and freedom as Jesus enables us. And those two words really seem juxtaposed next to each other. They really seem like those do not go together. Because mostly we misunderstand discipline. Mostly we think discipline is just terrible and unpleasant and we don't like it. But you know, and we, we think, okay, freedom is grace, discipline is law. But you know that the word says that grace teaches us to say no to sin? It's incredible. Through his grace, God disciplines us. Because of his grace, God disciplines us. Because he loves us, he disciplines us. So we need to, like Paul says, beat our bodies into submission sometimes. Don't give in to that temptation. Be disciplined because you know it's wrong. We need to be disciplined to learn, to grow, to equip ourselves for the battle. We need to be disciplined in our prayer and our study of the word. We need to be disciplined to come to public meetings. To go to a home group. It's hard sometimes. Hey, some of you are going to drive far to go to a home group. It's hard. But it requires discipline some evenings. Don't give up meeting together, as the writer of Hebrews says. We need to be disciplined in our giving. Disciplined in our thought life to bring it under the authority and the control of Christ. We need to live disciplined in all areas of our lives. The warning here with this one is that it can very easily become a fleshly thing. It can very easily become an earning your way up the rungs of the ladder that is a non-existent ladder into the higher echelons of Christianity. Please don't. That is not what I'm saying we need to do. We need to be disciplined in how we live because God says, it is good for me that I do that. He says, when you do that, it will benefit you. See, as a parent, I don't discipline my kids because they irritate me. I don't discipline my kids because I dislike what they are doing. I discipline them because I know that if I don't stop him doing that thing, a policeman is going to stop him doing something far worse much later. So let me rather discipline him now and teach him some self-control with chocolates so that he doesn't have to learn it hard later on in life with something else far more serious and with much greater consequences. And so when we will discipline ourselves, we get to avoid the, the worst consequences spiritually with God. Does that make sense? The freedom. Phew, let's discipline over. We must live from a place of discipline and freedom as Jesus enables us. Not an not a either or, it's a both and. The freedom we get to live in is the victory that Christ has won. And that means that we are free from others' expectations. Oh, breathe a sigh of relief. You are free from what others expect of you. Jesus was the most differentiated leader and person this world has ever seen. And by differentiated, I mean he was separated from the expectations of those he led, of those who were in power in society, of the greater crowds that were around him. He would heal. The disciples would be like, yes, please, Jesus' healing ministry has opened 5,000 plus people. We are feeding the masses. 
Let us stay and build a political movement here that the world has never seen. And Jesus says, we're going to the town down the road. Disciples are like, what are you doing? You're going to sabotage your own ministry. But he wasn't concerned with the cares of the people or his disciples. He was concerned with what the Father had called him to do. So when we are secure in our identity, spending time with Jesus, knowing what he is calling us to do, hearing the Spirit, we are able to live free from others' expectations. When people will put things on you and say, oh, but you should, you should, you should. Okay, maybe I should, but God says, I must. So I love you. We honor each other, but we obey God. Free from the expectations of others. Free from condemnation. I got ahead of myself and quoted it already. Romans 8 verse 1. Because you are in Christ, because you are forgiven, righteous, beloved, son and daughter of the King, you are free from condemnation. Jesus took that condemnation upon the cross. If you are experiencing that condemnation, recognize it as the enemy. The Holy Spirit brings conviction. And those are two very different feelings. They're two very different things. One is the one of a loving father who says, my boy, what you have done is wrong. Don't do that. The other one is the one of an enemy who says, what you have done is wrong. You're going to die. No one loves you. You're alone. You are worthless. You see the difference? It's not in me and what I've done. The difference is in how, who I listen to. There is therefore now no condemnation. If you want to live condemnation free, embrace the forgiveness of Jesus through the cross and the life that he gives through his resurrection. We get to live free from religious rules and regulations. There are no check boxes that we have to live in. There are ways that we can live that are more helpful and less helpful. But you don't have to wear long pants to church. You don't have to, have to, have to, have to. God says, I, I have this for you. It's beautiful, it's lovely, it's great, it's right and true. And we get to partake in that. But there are no check boxes that we have to live. There's nothing that we have to read five chapters a day, prayed 17 prayers today, said four Hail Marys and three Our Fathers. Live free from religious rules and regulations that bring death. And lastly, we are, we are free to enter into the presence of the Father. We are free to enter into the presence of God, our Father, friends. That is an incredible thing because God says over and over, you can't look at me, you can't see me, you can't be around me because you are sinful and sin cannot be where God is. So if you are where I am, you're going to die. And yet post-Jesus, the sacrifice in the New Testament, we are able to enter into with boldness and confidence the presence of the Father, the throne room of the King. I don't know if you've read the book of Esther in the Old Testament, but it talks, it's a brilliant story about um, Esther who becomes the king's wife. And, and he was the most powerful person that we know of on the planet at the time. And if you entered into his court and he didn't acknowledge you, they would cut your head off. Not a great place to be. So you can imagine standing outside that door, Oaks would have been sweating a little bit. And when they came in, he would point his mace at them like a kingly scepter. He would point it at them to acknowledge and say, yes, you're allowed to be in my presence. Small picture of the power of the king. And for us as sinners, 
Maybe you feel like you don't belong in that place. Maybe you feel like you don't belong in that throne room. But I want to say, friends, we get to enter into, boldly into that place. We get to run in like a child. Three, four-year-old kids, they got no airs and graces. They got no worries about social ills and meetings and things like that. They want to go in, they go in. I remember my dad, in a season, owned his own business. And it was in the, the Perm building in Durham. Remember Perm Bank? It was, it was in the 80s. But anyway, it was in the Perm building in, in the Durban CBD. I think it was on the fifth floor. I remember I could reach the button in the elevator. I used to ride the elevator in the building. As a little oak, I would have been five or six years old. And I went into there one day and there was a new, my dad had, had a new PA or a new secretary. And I think she knew who I was. I wasn't sure, but anyway. And she looked at me and she, I walked, I just barged into the, my dad's office. I don't care. This is where I'm going. Going to my dad. And, he's, and she looks at me and she goes, oh, hello, who are you? And I was like, I'm the boss's son. And I just kept walking. I just opened my dad's door and walked into his office. I literally, I didn't, I wasn't like, hi, I'm Mark, nothing, no manners. I was just like, how do you not know me? Like, I am the boss's son. And I walked, five, six years old. But that is a beautiful picture of what we are like with the Father. We get to be like that. We are free to enter into His presence, not because of anything we've done, not because of how much we've prayed today or any, how many times we've attended church or how much you've tithed, none of that. We are free to enter into the boss's room because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Because we are washed clean by the blood of Christ. Because we are seen as forgiven and righteous by, that, by the Father. It's a both and understanding of how we do life. It is both disciplined and free. We get to live from both places. Retreat doesn't mean we're no longer engaged. And discipline doesn't actually impinge on our, free, on our freedom. It in, in fact, it enhances it. So when we have our identity determined by the one who made us, it won't limit or destroy our self-esteem. God doesn't say these things about us and determine our identity to put limits on us. He does it to set us free. He does it to empower us. He does it, in fact, to enhance our lives because He knows that the, when we live from our truest self, we will be truly free in God. Can you imagine, friends, a church that lives from this place? Not just a local church. Yes, a local church. But can you imagine a wider church that lives from this place? Secure in who they are. Fearless for the gospel. Bringing the kingdom rule and reign of Christ in this region. Being those who live out our faith regardless of persecution or what other people think of us. Being bold in the face of massive obstacles. Living lives where there is, there is no hesitance or compromise to pay the price that it takes to advance the gospel and to take the great commission to all nations. The beautiful message that we get entrusted with. That's the kind of church I want to be a part of. How about you? This is the heart of apostolic Christianity. It's based on the foundation laid by the apostles and the prophets. And the identity of who we are in Christ. Praise God. So I want to pray. And as I pray, I want you to pray in your heart if you are ready. Like Isaiah said, here am I, send me. Father God, I, I thank you that 
You speak so clearly to the core of who we are. You minister so truthfully and so honestly to our greatest and deepest need. Lord, I ask that you would give us that spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we could know just how wide and high and deep and long is your love for us, God. Father, where we have allowed the enemy or the world or whatever it is to condemn us, to speak those lies over us, to, to speak lies into our identity, God, I pray that you would set us free from those things, Jesus. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak your truth into those wounds. I pray that you would speak your truth into those areas of oppression that we have in our lives. Friends, I, I just feel I, I have a serious picture of where there are, there are folks here who have had areas in your life where they are, like, they are like prison cells in a dungeon where the enemy has locked certain parts of you away. And I just see Jesus walking down a corridor and as he walks, doors flying open to, to things that people have said, you are not this. You will never be that. This is not you. And God's saying, I have called you to be this. I want to ask this morning, if that's you, won't you allow God to walk those passages of your heart? Allow Jesus to walk those deep, painful areas of your life and break open those doors that are closed, that have been locked and shut up and sealed for an age. Allow Him to break in and set you free from perhaps even what you have said of yourself, the lies that you have believed and you have spoken out about yourself. Come and speak to our identity, Holy Spirit. Come and speak to who we are. And Father, I pray that you would give us the wisdom of engaging and retreating in our lives. Help us to be bold and to trust you in our rest. God, let your grace come and bring discipline and freedom in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would establish a heart of love in us. Love for those who are far from you, Jesus. A love for those who don't know you. A love for those who desperately need to know who they are in you, God. Let us live out from this heart of apostolic Christianity, this heart of a, an apostolic faith that we have. Let us live out in love and service to the world around us. I thank you, Jesus, that it is, everything is from you, everything is to you, everything is for you. Let this be for your glory, for your kingdom, Jesus. Amen.